to the letter in the person of Jesus Christ. So note these. Up to Jerusalem, going to Jerusalem, going to be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. Gentiles will mock and scourge. The Gentiles will crucify him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, statisticians claim that the odds of one person fulfilling eight predictions is one to the one in tenth to the seventeenth power. That is a ten with seventeen zeros behind it. That's a large number. Uh, the equivalent of this would be to fill the state of Texas with two feet of silver dollars. Mark one of them with an X. Thoroughly mix. The odds of having a blindfolded man then pick out the X mark silver dollar is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Yet Jesus fulfilled not merely eight prophecies, but scores of them in relationship to his first coming. Every aspect of these prophecies was fulfilled to the letter. This totally validates the claims of Christ and shows that he was the fulfillment of God's plan as prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. You see, the gospel of Christ is according to the Old Testament scriptures, as stated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Our whole faith is based on prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. The Judeo-Christian faith is a prophetic faith, which is unique among all the religions of the world. Sure, you got those who speak in very general terms, but prophecy is very specific. When it comes from God. And prophecy is therefore God's specialty. Only God knows the future and only God controls the future. And therefore he alone can predict with absolute certainty what is going to happen. Now Isaiah 42, 1 through 9 is one of what we call the prophetic messianic songs in the book of Isaiah. It describes the Messiah as one who would uniquely have the spirit who will bring forth justice, who will bring light to the Gentiles, who opens the eyes of the blind and delivers the prisoners who sit in darkness. All of these prophecies are stated there. Now, and then, when you track it through in Isaiah 42, then in this messianic context, the Lord says he will not share his glory with any other, as seen in Isaiah 42, 8. And what is this glory? Well, it is God's prophetic glory. The glory to prophesy things and bring them to pass, especially in context, in relationship to the coming Messiah. Note the context here. This is all about the Messiah. This is a messianic text. And it flows to this, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And continuing the thought, what is his glory? Verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass. What he predicted has come to pass. And new things, I declare. New things related to the Messiah. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Prophecy has been called the great apologetic, the great defense of the faith. Everything stands or falls on the issue of prophetic truth. And the prophetic truth surrounding Christ is airtight, solid, and irrefutable. 
He fulfilled to the letter the Old Testament prophecies concerning his first coming related to his birth, ministry, death, and resurrection. No other religion in the world can boast this anywhere. I'll take on all challengers. Just bring me your prophecy. Let's see it. Where it was fulfilled historically, documented historically. That's the faith we have. The details added by Christ during his earthly ministry were also fulfilled to the letter. And because of this, we can have absolute confidence that all those prophecies related to his second coming will likewise yet be completely fulfilled to the letter. Even though Christ repeatedly made the reality of his coming death and resurrection abundantly clear to his disciples, yet they remained oblivious to what was about to happen. I mean, it just didn't register. In the parallel passage of Luke 18, we read this. But they understood none of these things. He's telling them what's about to happen in terms of his crucifixion and resurrection. But they understood none of these things. Just blank, you know, stare, deer in the headlight look. Uh, They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Uh, It tells us point blank, they didn't get it. You see, the disciples weren't thinking about the cross. That wasn't even on their radar. Rather, they were still focused on the idea of the coming kingdom and their place in it. After all, in this same context, as seen in Matthew 19, 28, Christ had just promised them 12 thrones in the kingdom, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. They liked that message. And they liked to build on it. Therefore, their minds were on the kingdom and not on the looming cross. They just didn't get it. Not at this point. By the way, a footnote. Who is responsible responsible for the death of, of Jesus Christ? Is it the Jews or is it the Gentiles? Of course, the answer is yes, right? Uh, Moody Bible commentary, although the church has historically held the Jewish people responsible for the death of Jesus, obviously Jesus includes Gentiles as responsible parties in this conspiracy of guilt. Certainly the Gentiles were involved here too. It was a collaborative effort, right? The Jews spearheaded it. Yeah, that's true. But the Gentiles carried through on it, even though they knew it was all fabricated, the charges that were brought against him. Verse 20, right after Jesus said, I mean, this is kind of like a staggering, sobering moment as he's announcing we're going up to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer these things and, and, and be crucified very specifically and then rise again. In that context, verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Now talk about being unaware of the context and and thus being insensitive. Uh, Here Jesus is talking about this coming horrific experience, climaxing in his death, followed by the resurrection. And here comes Mrs. Zebedee with her sons with a kingdom request. I mean, timing is everything, right? Uh, Mrs. Zebedee is elsewhere called Salome. I one time inadvertently called her Salami, but it's Salome. It is uh, thought that in all probability she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Well, this would make her the aunt of Jesus and her two sons, James and John, the cousins of Jesus. Well, if this is so, this is all in the family. Salome was one of the women who followed Jesus and ministered to him, as we find in Mark 15. She was at the cross 
and then later witnessed the empty tomb. So she certainly was a, a devoted person to Jesus and his ministry. Jesus called her sons, by the way, James and John, the sons of thunder. I think they could stir things up. These guys, you know, they were, they were the sons of thunder. From the cross reference in Mark 10, 35 through 37, we find that not only was the mother making this request, but Mark specifically says the sons were making the request. So they were all three involved here. Evidently, initially, they were kind of, you know, mother was out front. But they were involved too, no doubt about it. They were, they were all involved. So evidently they came with their mother and initially she very humbly on behalf of her sons kneels down before Jesus and initiates this request. Verse 21, and he said to her, what, what do you wish? She said to him, I have a very small request. No, she didn't say that. She did not say that. She has a very large request. She said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Again, while Jesus is now focused on his death, they are still focused on the kingdom. And the request here was that her two boys have the key positions of prominence, prestige, power, and honor in the kingdom. One on Christ's right hand and the other on the left hand. Again, she wasn't asking for much, just for the premier positions in the kingdom, under Christ, of course. Now, it seems very possible that her request was based on what Jesus had just earlier promised to the 12 disciples, that they would sit on 12 thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel in the kingdom, as seen in Matthew 19, 28. D.A. Carson says the link with 19:28, a verse that speaks of both throne and glory, is unmistakable. Now, give them a little bit of credit here. They did believe that Christ is going to set up his kingdom and they were going to share in it. I mean, they were true believers. And Christ did not correct their view of the coming kingdom. Say, you know what? Uh, no, don't even talk about the future kingdom. That's not going to happen. He didn't say that. They were right in their understanding of a future coming kingdom. But what they failed to understand is that the cross, the cross comes first. They didn't even get the idea of the cross yet at this point, although Christ had repeatedly stated it. Furthermore, Christ makes this correction concerning positioning in the coming kingdom. Verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? They said to him, We're able. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're all in. We're able. Jesus points out the question is based in ignorance. The you here is plural, so it's directed not only to the mother, but also to the sons. As I say, they all three were involved here. Initially, the sons of thunder are kind of hiding behind their mother, you know, which is always kind of interesting. But really, they're all involved. This position is reserved for those who most closely identify with Christ in his sufferings. You see, they were asking for a prominent position And not for a role of suffering. They were ignorant of what is involved in being rewarded with this position. It goes to those who partake of Christ's cup of suffering and identify with him in this way. The word cup is imagery that refers to what is divinely allotted to a person. In this case, to the allotment of suffering. William MacDonald says, We are not left to wonder. 
what he meant by the cup. He had just described it in verses 18 and 19. He must suffer and die. Now, the older manuscripts do not have the phrase about baptism here in Matthew 20, uh, 22 and 23. But it makes the same point as baptism has the idea of identification. But note the parallel text in Mark 10, 38 and 39, does include the phrase about baptism. So it is represented in the Gospels. Again, they were not thinking of the, the suffering involved in the way of the cross, but only of reigning in the kingdom. Now, lots of Christians get off track here. Uh, for many, it's about kingdom now, forgetting that now for the Christian is all about the way of the cross. First the cross, then the crown. This was true for Jesus, and it's true for his followers as well. The Corinthians in the early church apparently were involved in the air of an early form of kingdom now theology. And Paul really kind of sarcastically corrects them. Notice what he says here in 1 Corinthians 4, 8. You are already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Paul is saying that they seemingly had a kingdom now theology that claimed they're already reigning. And to this he responds that he wishes it were true so that they might all share in it together. But the point is, it was not true. They were not yet reigning. They were just holding to an errant theology, as many in our day are also doing. You see, Christ's followers are not yet in the kingdom. Yes, positionally, we are there. Just like our names are written down in heaven. Yeah, we're citizens of heaven, but we're not there yet. And we're not in the kingdom yet either. We pray for the messianic kingdom to come as Christ taught us to do. But we are called in the here and now to follow Christ in the way of the cross. We are told to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. Let me tell you something. This should be so obvious, and yet for many it's not. The way of the cross is not the kingdom. Do you know there's going to be no uh, crucifixion of Christ's people in the kingdom? The way of the cross is not the kingdom. The cross precedes the kingdom. Peter writes to the suffering saints and he says this. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. This is not the time of kingdom exaltation but rather the time of humbling down in cross-bearing. Even after the resurrection, the disciples still had kingdom now on their mind, saying to Christ in Acts 1-6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responded by saying, they, in effect, should not be preoccupied with kingdom now thinking, but rather serve as his witnesses to the ends of the earth. The kingdom will come in the Father's good time. But in the meantime, we are called to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. However, ignorance is a hard thing to shake. In their ignorance, they say to Jesus, we're able. We're able to drink of this cup. No problem. We got it, Lord. 
D.A. Carson says, It is often ignorance that seeks leadership, power, and glory. The brothers do not know what they are asking. To ask to reign with Jesus is to ask to suffer for him. You want a position in the kingdom? Fine, we have a sign-up sheet. No, I'm just kidding. For suffering. The Lord has a sign-up sheet, you know, figuratively. For suffering. In ignorance, they claim to be up to the challenge of entering into the sufferings of Christ, not even realizing what they're saying. They say that ignorance is bliss, and perhaps it sometimes is, but often it is also in for a rude awakening. And thus Jesus gives them a jolt of reality. Verse 23, so he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So Christ then informed them that indeed they would share in his cup, that, in his, that is, in his destiny of suffering, they would in a limited sense enter into the sufferings of Christ as their lot in life. That would indeed be their cup, their lot. We as Christ's people are called to follow in the steps of Christ and his example of suffering, as Peter brings out as he writes to the suffering saints in 1 Peter 2.21. We do enter into, quote, the fellowship of his suffering, Philippians 3.10. Amy Carmichael wrote this. Hast thou no scar, no wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? Well, that, that's a haunting question. Indeed, James became a, a martyr early in the church age. And John, in his old age, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where he received the revelation. James was the, the first of the apostles to die. And John was the last. Uh, Robert Little says, James died a martyr's death. John lived a martyr's life. Interestingly, Jesus said, it's not mine to give. Uh, this position of on the right hand, on the left, it's not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my Father. The uh, Reformation Study Bible has a good note here. This is interesting. <clears throat> in the mystery of the Trinity, the Son is one with the Father in substance and equal to the Father in power and glory. Yet he willingly submits to the Father's will and defers to the Father's authority as the incarnate, well-pleasing Messianic Son, even in his exaltation. So there is total equality among the members of the Godhead, and yet they do have differing roles. The Son, in His role, defers to the Father. Verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. I mean, pulling this stuff with the mother and the family. I mean, you could just see, this is right, this isn't fair. When the ten knew the brothers' request for Jesus to give them the most prominent positions in the kingdom, they were greatly displeased. Because evidently they, they too wanted these positions. All the disciples were thinking about their own greatness at this point in connection, and in connection with the kingdom and in competition with each other. With the irony being that Jesus was focused on the cross. 
Now, the disciples, without exception, were completely overlooking what Christ had been emphasizing about kingdom greatness being related to humility, as noted back in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. The disciples, and dare I say us as well, are slow to get it often. The self-centered flesh runs deep in all of us. So it was time for another lesson to reinforce what Jesus had already taught them. You know, when you don't get the lesson, you have to be taught it again and again and again as necessary. And some of us, I'll put myself at the front of the line, are kind of slow sometimes. Oh, the patience of Jesus in working with his disciples, which fellow believers includes you and me. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's what they do. And those who are great exercise authority over them. This is how the world typically carries on. You know, you know all those humble leaders in our land today, right? I mean, they're very humble people. I mean, from the top right, all right down to our local dog catcher, they're all very humble folks. Yeah, not so much. This is how the world carries on. Now, there's exceptions. Praise the Lord. You know, we got some Daniels in the mix. We, you know, God always has, kind of sprinkles his people throughout. That we are the salt. We are the light. There's always exceptions. But typically, the world carries on this way. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over their subjects. They like to play Lord, you know. They like to play God. Lorded over means to have mastery over. It means to have dominance over with a nuance of heavy-handedness. Those in positions of power exercise authority over the people, meaning they throw their weight around in a controlling manner. Now, great leadership, according to the world, often means to be in the position of dominance and control. It's a dog-eat-dog world. As the strong scratch and claw their way up to the top. But in Christ's family, that's not to be the paradigm. In fact, Christ turns the way of the world on its head in relationship to how his followers are to carry on. Verse 26. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great. You want to be great? Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Once again, Christ points out the way to greatness in his kingdom is the way of humble service. You see, the difference in attitude between secular leadership and spiritual leadership rests in the attitude of servanthood. Greatness is not seen in ruling over others, but rather in serving them. Now, this word servant is the Greek word diakados, from which we get our... English word, deacon. The word deacon literally means servant, minister, or helper. This is not a ruling position, but merely one of service. The office of deacon involves a, a special role of serving the body as they serve as special assistants to the elders. And it's a recognized role. It's a, it's a role of dignity. And it's, a, uh, you know, deacons have the same qualifications as elders with the exception they don't have to be able to teach. Notice Jesus said, if anyone desires to be great, let him be the servant. That is the exact opposite of asserting yourself and walking all over people to get to the front of the line. 
The entire spirit is different. The world represents selfism and a me first spirit. Christ exhorts his people to be other centered, to serve others before self. Verse 27, and whoever desires to be first, you guys all want to be first. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now the language here gets stronger. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, be a slave. Now you see, a slave had no rights of his own. Uh, A slave lived to serve another. That's the attitude of a slave. That's the position of a slave. It lives to serve the highest good of others with no thought for self. The more humble the position on earth, the greater the position in the kingdom. Want to be great in the kingdom? You enter into that door through humble service. Those assuming the role of slave will be first in the kingdom. So much for vying for prominence in which self is served. In the pagan world, the idea of humility was seen as a vice and not as a virtue. It was literally a put down. I mean, it was unthinkable that a slave be placed in the most favored position of being first. But again, the kingdom values of Jesus turns things upside down or or rather right side up. William Barclay astutely says, The world may assess a man's greatness by the number of people whom he controls and who are at his beck and call or by his intellectual standing and his academic eminence or by the number of committees of which he is a member or by the size of his bank balance and the material possessions which he has amassed. But in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant. You see, God grades greatness in the kingdom according to humble service. In the here and now, the true servants will be great and those who serve in the lowliest position as slave will be first. Verse 28, just as the son of man, the ultimate example of what he's talking about, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his Life, a ransom for many. Now again, Jesus uses the messianic term son of man in referring to himself. As the Messiah in his state of humility, this term of designation was that most commonly used by Jesus to refer to himself, as I said earlier. Yes, he is also the son of God, meaning he is of the order of God. But his messianic mission on earth emphasizes him as the son of man, meaning of the order of man. You see, in order to accomplish his messianic mission as a representative of the human race, he had to be a man. And this title emphasizes that reality. I mean, why was Christ here on earth? He was here as our great representative. The dominion mandate that God gave to mankind in the Garden of Eden will ultimately be restored through the man, Jesus Christ. He's our great representative. Now, he wasn't merely a man, but rather the God-man. Fully God and fully man in one person. But again, the emphasis in relationship to his earthly messianic mission was on his humanity. Now, there's overlap. 
But during his earthly ministry, the overwhelming emphasis is on the aspect of his person related to him being the son of man. Following his resurrection, the overwhelming emphasis is on the aspect of his person related to him being the son of God. For example, in Romans 1.4, it says that in the resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God. The son of God. It doesn't say he was declared to be the son of man. Well, yeah, he's declaring himself to be the son of man all the way through his earthly ministry. He is God here as a man, the God-man, on a human mission in that sense, to die for the sins of the world as a, as a human representative. Again, there's overlap. But the emphasis at this juncture is in relationship to the cross. And the emphasis, therefore, is on Christ's humanity as the Son of Man. And the Son of Man, in his state of humility did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, to be great is to be the servant of many. To be first is to be the slave of many. But to be supreme is to give one's life for many. Jesus is the supreme example and role model of humble service. It ultimately gives his life. Now here Jesus summarizes the purpose of his coming in one line. Namely to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be waited on. Rather to serve. He was not here to promote self but to serve others. He is the ultimate example. And his followers should follow in his footsteps. This is the key to kingdom greatness. And then for the first time... For the first time, Christ plainly tells his disciples the ultimate purpose for his coming. He had previously told them that he was going to die, but he had not told them why. Here for the first time, he spells out the why, the purpose for his coming. Namely to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that word ransom, Greek word translated ransom, commonly referred to the price paid to redeem a slave. To redeem means to deliver by paying a price. So the idea of ransom here is to buy the freedom of. This is what Christ came to do, to pay the price for our sin through his death so believers in him might go free. This is what it means by Jesus being our Savior. He paid our sin debt on the cross so we might go free. Thus, he saves believers from their sin debt. Now, the word for means in the place of. Jesus became our substitute. He took our place. So they say he's our great representative. Jesus became our ransom, the purchase price for our sin. That's what the cross was all about. It was a ransom. It was a payment that was being made, the price of sin. The wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. The cross was the payment, the ransom for our sin. And this is what we have built on then in the New Testament epistles. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then he says, this ransom was for 
many. I'm, I'm glad it doesn't say hardly any. Uh, it was for many. Brian Bell says, first it was one animal sacrifice per person. Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. Then it was one animal sacrifice per family at Passover, Exodus 12. Then one animal sacrifice per nation, the Day of Atonement. Finally, one sacrifice per world. John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some believe that many here refers to the idea that Christ died only for a specific group of people. Uh, This is called by Reformed theologians particular redemption, meaning Christ died only for a particular group of people called the elect. However, many may simply be a qualifying word regarding those who would receive the salvation he purchased. And when one considers the whole counsel of God, I believe this is the proper sense. Christ died for all. Salvation is offered to all. But only the many, the elect, would receive it. Uh, John MacArthur makes this statement in his commentary on Matthew. Jesus' ransom was paid to God to satisfy his holy justice. And it was more than sufficient to cover the sins of everyone who has ever lived and ever will live. His death was sufficient for the whole world, says John. 1 John 2, 2. Although his ransom is sufficient for every person, it is valid only for those who believe in him. It is in that sense that this redemption is for many rather than for all. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for all, but is efficient only for the many who accept him as Lord and Savior. Now, many, pun intended, scholars believe that Christ's use of many here in Matthew 20, 28 is a reference back to Isaiah 53. Notice what we have there, Isaiah 53 and verses 11 and 12. He shall see the labor of his soul, prophecy regarding the coming Messiah. God will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. It It will be sufficient. It's going to be a sufficient payment. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. But in balance, we should note that the many in Isaiah 53, 11, and 12 builds on the all of Isaiah 53, 6. It's always good to read the whole passage, right? Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. You talking just about the elect? I don't think so. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then you follow it down to what we've already read in Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. He said, justify many. He bore the sin of many. There's no contradiction to Christ took on him the iniquity of all who have gone astray in verse 6 and the fact that he bore the sin of many in verse 12. Both are true. Christ died for all. Many will be justified. This is consistent with Paul's theology in the New Testament. Notice what he says. 
1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So God, in desiring all to be saved, has provided a ransom for all. All has the same universal application in verse 6 as it does in verse 4. But here's the catch. The truth of the gospel has to be applied by faith. By the way, I think that's why Judgment Day for the unsaved is so serious. They rejected the the provision that God has made. This is the whole issue in, say, for example, in Hebrews chapter 10. 1 Timothy, same book, building on chapter 2. 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. I believe Paul is here emphasizing and building on the emphasis of all men, as seen in 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. Thus, he is emphasizing God as the Savior of all men, in the sense that provision has been made for all. He's already established that in chapter 2. But it ultimately applies only to those who believe. The word especially expresses the idea of particularly. You want a proper concept of particular redemption? This is it. It applies particularly to those who believe. Yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, He is the Savior of the world, John 4, 42. Yes, He is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. But it only applies especially of those who believe, particularly of those who believe. Just like the blood of the Passover lamb, which had to be applied So the blood of Jesus must be personally applied by faith. All through their history, the Jews looked for a Messiah who would come and deliver them. I mean, this was their great hope, Messianic hope. But they thought in terms of a mighty conquering king who would smash their enemies and put Israel into the leading position over all the kingdoms of the earth. They looked for, the, for a raging lion of Judah, but they did not realize that their greatest form of bondage was not political, but spiritual. They looked for a messianic lion, but instead they got the gentle lamb of God who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But there are two parts to this story. There's a sequel, right? The first time he came as the lamb to give his life as a ransom. But he's coming again. And the second time he comes, he's coming as a lion to reign in power and glory. Right? He's returning, not as a lamb this next time, but as a lion. Now we see what the disciples fail to see. Praise God. You know, we are so blessed to have the whole book here, right? I mean, we got the full revelation. I mean, it's complete. Uh, We are most blessed. And so we see what the disciples, certainly at this point, (laughs) did not see. First the lamb, then the lion. First the cross, 
then the crown. As we await the second coming, we are called to walk in the way of the cross. That's our calling in the here and now. And as we do so faithfully, we will be rewarded. Note the Bible makes a clear distinction between the gift of salvation and rewards for humble service. And I really want to emphasize this. You don't, you don't want to get these mixed up. Notice what the Bible says here, Romans 6. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then, uh, this relates to the gift of God, eternal life. It's a gift. You, know, you don't pay for a gift, right? I mean, on the holidays or Christmas, you don't say, how much do I owe you for this? <laughs> you don't do that. If it's a gift, it's grace. Uh, no strings attached. It's a free gift. In contrast, reward. Christ says at the end of the book, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. So here's, here's the distinction I want you to see. Salvation, it's a gift. It's received by faith. Rewards are according to the quality of our service. Christ's sacrifice for sin was a sufficient payment for all the sins of the world. But it is efficient only for those who by faith receive him as Lord and Savior. Have you done this? That's the ultimate issue. Only this will secure you a place in the kingdom. We are saved by grace alone, the cross, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you are a believer, now the issue is quality of service. You are going to face judgment too, but not for sin. Jesus took your judgment on the cross. No condemnation for those in Christ. There's no penalty for sin. Christ took our penalty. That's not what the believer's judgment is about. The issue is God's going to evaluate, evaluate your quality of service. That's the issue. The believer's judgment is all about rewards based on service. And not about the penalty of sin because Christ paid for our penalty in full once and for all on the cross. The ransom payment has been made. In terms of reward, if you want to be great, hey, hey you're thinking beyond this life. Say, what's all about right now? Just, just now, now, now. I see people. It's the foolishness of Christians sometimes. Live like this is what it's all about. This is a vapor. And then we're out into eternity, which matters for all eternity. In terms of reward, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. We sang that somewhere recently, didn't we? If you want to be prominent first, then learn to be the slave. Take it one step further to be the slave of all. You see yourself as a slave, anybody? I wonder if my wife sees me as a slave around the house. I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> Since she's waiting on me all the time. If you want to be prominent, learn to be the slave of all. And Jesus set the standard for us in coming to serve and giving his life a ransom for all. The disciples were all about the crown. But they didn't realize the road to the crown is the way of the cross. The crown comes later for those who faithfully walk in the way of the cross. Everybody who's talking about the crown, you know, first the crown of thorns and the crown of glory. That's how it was for Jesus. Say, but it's different for me. I can bypass uh, the thorns. Really? I don't think so. 
If you want to share in the reward of the crown of glory, first comes the crown of thorns. In the way of the cross. First the cross, then the kingdom. First the labor, then the reward. God help us to live accordingly. Let's stand and have our closing song.